Proverbs chapter 8. Speaking of wisdom, wisdom actually in this passage is the one speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before He had made the earth with its fields, or with the first dust of the world. When He established the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep. When He made firm the skies above. When He established the fountains of the deep. When He assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress His command. When He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him like a master workman. I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him, rejoicing in His inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep My ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. title of my talk here, our final talk, is Joy Has Its Reasons, How to Have a Merry Heart. Joy, the Bible tells us, is to be the constant, continuous posture of the Christian life. As Paul says, rejoice always. Or again, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We're supposed to have joy and to rejoice all the time if we're to take Paul seriously. And I think this is hard for us to get our minds around because we tend to think of joy as if it were a synonym for being happy. The problem with this is that we all know that no one is happy, happy, happy all the time. If joy is the same thing as feeling happy, then the only people who can always be in that state are hypocrites. But joy isn't a simple feeling. And this is what I want you to realize. Joy is a response. Joy is fundamentally a response. To put it in a different different way, joy has reasons. It has roots that are anchored in something bigger and more powerful than our circumstances. And that's why Paul says that we can always do it. What I want to look at this morning is the beginning of the beginning. I want to look at how the Bible shows us that creation is the first reason for joy. Specifically, I'm going to focus on three things. First, how joy is anchored in the fact that God made all things good. We've really got to get that in our bones. It's a theme. You'll see it. It's been throughout all of these talks. Secondly, how idolatry is the root of despair. And then third, how thanksgiving and gratitude are the secret to unlocking the power of joy in our lives. 
thanksgiving, and gratitude. So first of all, all things made good. Our passage that I just read from Proverbs 8 is fascinating. Remember that the first ten chapters of Proverbs is a contrast between two women, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Each are calling out to the Son to make them his wife. It's a competing romance. And this is why personification runs throughout the entire chapter. We see it at the beginning of chapter 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the height beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in the front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of men. The early part of this chapter, which I did not read, Solomon extols wisdom's value in verse 8. All the words of my mouth are righteous, she says. Verse 11, wisdom is better than jewels. Verse 15, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. Verses 18 through 19, riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than the choicest silver. And then in verse 22, Solomon turns to go back back to the very beginning and show why this is the case. And if you read Proverbs 8, you may have noted how odd this transition is, right? He's extolling the the value of wisdom, all the things I just said. And then in verse 22, all of a sudden, it changes. And now it's a story about wisdom being at creation. Why is that? It's an odd, it's almost like an insertion into the chapter. It's a bit odd. What's really going on? I think Solomon is showing us why this is the case, why wisdom is so valuable, why it's the thing that we ought to, you know, in Proverbs 2, we ought to give up the substance of our house to find it. The young man ought to go seek for her as hidden treasures. Why is wisdom so valuable? Here's why. It's because wisdom was at the beginning. That's why. Wisdom was at the very beginning. Before anything was made, wisdom was. Moreover, the emphasis isn't just that wisdom was present, but that wisdom was intimately involved in creation. And note carefully what her role was in verse 30 and 31. When I was constantly at His side, I was filled with delight day after day. Rejoicing always in His presence. Rejoicing in His whole world. And delighting myself in mankind. Lady Wisdom's response to creation is joy. Joy in God's presence. Joy in God's world. And joy in the sons of men. And it's interesting that if you examine the full breadth of Scripture, she's not alone in this. Listen to Job, chapter 38, verses 4-7. through The Lord is speaking to Job and He says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When the world was created, all the morning stars sang for joy and the sons of God shouted with joy at the Lord's making of the world. Or again, think of this from Psalm 104, verses 24 through 26 and 31 through 34. And if you one Psalm 104, by the way, is one of my absolute favorite psalms. The 103 and 104. 104 is a meditation on creation and the Lord's glory and goodness revealed in creation. It's a phenomenal psalm. Encourage you to study it, to love it, and to make it a part even of your memory work. Listen to how the psalmist expresses himself here. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. Living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. I love the fact that the Lord made animals to play in creation. They teach us by observing them what we're supposed to do. Leviathan plays, so should we. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing my praise, sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Isn't it interesting that here in Psalm 104, it's the Lord's joy in His own works that produces the joy in the psalmist. The Lord rejoices in His works. And the psalmist rejoices by surveying all the works that God has done, and he rejoices in the Lord. The only reason the psalmist can rejoice is because God rejoices first. There's the secret. Our joy is entering into the joy of the Lord. The Lord's joy at what He has made. When the Lord made the world, He wasn't begrudging. He didn't do it because He was compelled. He didn't do it because there was a deadline or something that had to be done in order to contribute something to His own glory. The Lord didn't need creation. He made the world out of love. And He bestowed upon, bestowed upon creation His own glory. And so in day seven, when he rests on the Sabbath and surveys his works and finds it very good, he is glad in what he has made. It rejoices his heart. And man, made in God's image, also rejoices in what God has made. Man's chief work, Father Capon says, is to look at the world and to love it for what it is, because that is what God does. And man was not made in God's image for nothing. The Lord rejoices in His works, and His joy is the source of our joy. All of these passages make the creation of the world sound like one grand festival. When the Lord made the world, it was not in pure silence. It was a day of grand delight and joy and singing. 
This is one of the reasons why I think Lewis and Tolkien and others talk about the creation of the world as if it were a grand song. Because it was, there was singing. The stars sang. Heavenly hosts and the sons of men rejoiced and delighted when God made the world. And wisdom herself rejoiced and was glad. This is the reason why Lady Wisdom is so valuable. She understands the gladness of the world. She knows it. She is like old Tom Bombadil. Remember Tom Bombadil from The Lord of the Rings? That sort of interesting, mercurial character who's constantly bouncing around, singing nonsense songs. Just going around, inhabiting all of his domain and delighting in it, rescuing the hobbits when they're in danger. C.R. Wiley has something very interesting to say about Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil's age, he writes, hasn't made him curmudgeonly. He's old. He's not Peter Pan, a boy who refuses to grow up. He's young because he is the oldest. His songs are the same ones the morning stars sang at the beginning. He knows them because he heard them on the first day. And nothing can master him because any tune conjured up by Old Willow or even a Dark Lord is just a perversion of a tune that he knows by heart. He can sing their songs aright. Tom's roots are so deep that they, can make, him, that they make him light on his feet. No catching him. His songs are stronger songs. And his feet are are faster. I think Tom Bombadil is a personification of wisdom in The Lord of the Rings. He knows the songs because he heard them on the first day. He knows creation's song. And therefore, when he sees it being twisted by evil, it doesn't bring fear because he knows the real songs. He knows how they're supposed to be sung. He knows the original power of the created world. And no distortion. No evil song can negate that good. And so he's light on his feet. The older he is, it doesn't lead to pessimism or despair. It leads to confidence and buoyancy. Finally, think about Solomon at his height. You ever noticed when the Scripture speaks about Solomon's wisdom, how it captures that wisdom, let me read for you from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. Listen to Solomon's wisdom. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Hermon, and Calcol, and Darda, and the sons of Malhal. And his fame was in all surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Notice this. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also spoke of beasts, of birds, 
and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Have you ever noticed that when Solomon it speaks of Solomon's wisdom, it was wisdom about the created world. It was about fish and birds and beasts. Solomon had insight into the world. That was what wisdom was all about. It enabled him to understand the beauty and the depth and the power and the goodness of what God had made. Notice that wisdom didn't, was not some ethereal spiritual thing that took him his gaze away from the world. It took his gaze into the depths of the world. It was like Tom Bombadil. He began to understand he knew the world. It's right ordering. What it was designed for. What its purposes were for. That's the value of the book of wisdom, actually. It's very earthy. It's very worldly. It draws us deeply into the world. The world that God made and that God designed. Creation is, then, a source of joy because creation was made very good and it speaks of its maker. That's the value of wisdom. Wisdom allows us to hear that conversation, to see and to understand the goodness of what God has made, how it reveals Him. But if joy is a response to the way that things are, despair, on the other hand, is rooted in idolatry. As what Father Capon said, we thought about this last night, in what things can be made to mean to me. Not in what things are, but what they can be made to mean to me. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is always taking something good that God made and turning it into something that it isn't. Romans chapter 1, verses 21-26, through 26, that you're all familiar with, explains it this way. Classic passage on idolatry, but maybe you haven't considered it from this direction. Paul writes, For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So, interesting. When we do this, when we think not what things are, but what they can be made to mean to us, we claim to be wise. We think we have wisdom. But Paul says, no. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They were not wise, they were fools. And their foolish heart was darkened. They exchange... What does this... Put it this way. What does this foolishness look like? Well, here it is. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange the natural function of those that are contrary to nature. The word exchange is used three times in this passage. And it's incredibly significant to understanding the nature of what idolatry really is. Sin is always the result of claiming that we know better than God. 
We say we're wise, but we don't submit ourselves to His wisdom. We say things are what I think they are. Our sinful hearts are unwilling to receive God's good gifts and to give thanks for them and to submit to those gifts the way that He designed them. And the result is a horrifying exchange. That's what Romans 1 says. It's an exchange. We exchange the glory of God for created things. One of the things that I think happens in people thinking about Romans 1 is they think somehow that it's creation that's the problem. Because after all, men worship and serve animals and birds and creatures. That's not the pro- Creation's not the problem. The problem is the exchange. That's the problem. We're exchanging the glory of God for created things. In other words, we are putting created things in the place of God. We're saying that they are God, not Him. And of course, that is a dishonor to God because God is God, not the, cre- not the creature. But here's the point I want you to also realize. I said this last night. It is also a dishonoring of real things as well. To put a creature in the place of God is not to do more for the creature. It's to do less. The creature is not God, and so you're lying about what it is. You're putting your own meaning on the creature, and therefore you are dishonoring what is made by God. It's not more. It's less. So for instance, Capon says that the golden calf, for instance, nothing wrong with a golden calf. It is, after all, a golden calf. The problem was when Israel said, this is the God that delivered you out of the land of Egypt. That's wrong and false and a lie. It's a dishonor to God, but it's also a dishonor to cows. Golden cows. Because that's not what it is. So idolatry has this twofold dilution, this exchange. It gets rid of God's glory, but it also diminishes the glory of true things that he made. It's an assault on the fullness of reality. The second thing is that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. A lie that says that the creature should be worshipped and served rather than the Creator. We abandon God's glory and the glory of things and we believe a lie. We unhitch ourselves from the truth. And so we believe that a lie is true. There's an inversion in the truthfulness that we see and say about the world. And finally, for that reason, God gives us up to our dishonorable passions. That sound familiar? to our own desires that are dishonorable, which leads ultimately to an exchange of what is natural or that which is according to nature for that which is unnatural. In other words, when we dishonor God and true things by switching them and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator, what happens in our own lives is that we abandon what is natural, what is according to nature. We don't actually respect ourselves and what we have been made to do. 
And so our practices, our sexual practices in particular, take on the character of this exchange. We don't honor nature anymore. We don't recognize that a man goes with a woman and a woman with a man. We're willing to set that all aside and to say that nature is whatever we want it to be. And now we are at odds with the world, the thing that we worship. We set up an idol in God's place and we lose the world that God gave to us. Now we set ourselves against it, the very thing that we're, supposed, that we're supposedly worshiping. That's the grand tragedy of Romans 1. We set ourselves against what should be our dearest friend. That's the world. Because we reject the one who gave us the world. And confusion, moral confusion, confusion of all sorts, and self-hatred are the outcome. I think it's significant that Francis Schaeffer used to say that man can never escape the mannishness of man. Wherever he goes, he goes with himself. And as many lies as man says about himself and about the world, he can never get away from the fact that he is made in God's image. And that creates a war within himself. And if you want to know that in our age of acedia, why suicide is on the rise almost everywhere, I said that the outcome of acedia is nihilism. And nihilism isn't just the loss of meaning. It's the revolt against meaning. The ultimate act of the revolt against meaning is to take your own life away. To say that I am a manifestation of God's character. I am made in God's image. And I hate that. And I want it to go away. The only way to do that is to snuff it out. Not only do you snuff out other people's lives, but the end result is that you want to finally rebel against your own life. So why, for the medieval mind, suicide was such a heinous crime? If you killed yourself, you didn't get buried with all the rest of God's people. You were set apart. And it wasn't just because you, you took life. It's because you revolted against reality. You ultimately said, not thy will be done, but my will be done. Isn't it interesting that in our age, we have no resistance to suicide? It's one of the things that irritates me so much about the way our modern, an actor kills himself, and everybody's like, sad, but at least he was doing what he wanted to do. It's not a tragedy anymore. But if you really understand the goodness of reality, it is a supreme tragedy. Supreme tragedy. This is how idolatry works every single time. It is a twisted exchange in which we lose God and the world he has given us in exchange for our own autonomy. And that's why the outcome is acedia that leads to despair or to sadness. 
Listen to how Jeff Cook describes this. At its core, sloth or acedia moves us away from everything that ultimately matters and directs us towards simple distractions. Sloth is not mere laziness. Sloth is indifference. Indifference to my soul, indifference to my neighbors, my world, or my God. Drug users, TiVo addicts, and obsessive video gamers may be poisoned by sloth, but so are most workaholics. Sloth is not restfulness. Sloth is escapism of a deadly sort. Sloth saps our time, our emotions, through a favorite sports team, a new set of shoes, or obsession over appearance, while leaving scant energy for our marriage, our kids, or our duties. And note that through all of this, idolatry always ends up losing, even destroying the thing that God puts in, uh, that, that we put in God's place. Be that a spouse, a friend, a child, a job, recognition, money, sex, or even our own bodies. As I said, idolatry is saying, my will be done. That's the grand, one of the grand tragedies of idolatry is that it destroys the thing that it sets out to make God. Young men and women, if you are in a romantic relationship in which you are putting the, your, your beloved in the place of God, as though they are going to satisfy the longings that only God can fill, beware. Not only will your relationship be destroyed, but you will destroy your beloved. That's the reality. You will destroy them. Because that's what idolatry does. It destroys, dishonors not only God, but it destroys and dishonors the thing that is put in his place. It's why it's so important to root out idolatry from our lives everywhere. Idolatry is not deeper love of the world or anything else. It has to be abandoned if we're really going to love the world the way that God gave it to us. So what's the answer? Well, as I said, I think the answer that Scripture gives us is the answer of gratitude and thanksgiving. I want to talk a little bit about that in closing. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-4 through 4, provides us with a key. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Notice what these liars do. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. I wish more Christians would underline that in their Bibles. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Notice that Paul's answer to idolatry isn't to run away from things. It's actually these false teachers that Paul's warning Timothy against that are the ones who are set against things. They're in the grip of idolatry. And that idolatry leads them to oppose things. God created, Paul says, everything to be received with thanksgiving. There's the key. 
everything is to be received with thanksgiving. This is how you protect against idolatry. You receive things that God intended for you to enjoy with thanksgiving. This is the first and most powerful root of joy. Our first sin is to be ungrateful for what God has given and to grasp for what He hasn't given. That's what Eve did in the garden. First primordial sin. To reject what God had given and to grasp for what He hadn't given. Thanksgiving and gratitude are the remedy to this. Let me ask you this. Do you regularly ask God for the ability to see and to savor His goodness? Do you ask Him for that ability? You should. Ask Him, Lord, help me to cherish and savor my wife and the grand gift that You have given to me in her. Lord, help me to savor and cherish my husband and the splendor of Your gifts to me in him. Remember that a prudent wife is from the Lord. I think we can say also that a prudent husband is as well. It's His gift. He designs it, and He gives it to you. Your job is to receive it with gratitude and thanksgiving, and that means something active, not passive, but active. You must give thanks for it. You must cultivate a heart of appreciation and delight in your spouse. The same goes with your children. Do your children know that you delight in them? And I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow. Can they hear the Father's voice in their lives? My son, my daughter, this is my daughter and my son, in whom I am well pleased. Or do your children, when they think of you, think of a censorious parent who's more primarily concerned with what they do and they don't do, what their performance is? Do they know in their bones the delight that comes from receiving God's gift with thankfulness? What I am suggesting is that the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving and gratitude has to be cultivated. It has to be cultivated in our lives. And that's why Paul exhorts the church to rejoice always. He's not doing that because he's just a hopeless, incurable optimist. Thinks it would be nice if people just had a better attitude about life. He's saying, no, this is what you have to do. This is what you must do because you belong to the Lord and because he's given you gifts. Not so that you can earn them, but because he's given them all to you. This is your birthright. Cultivate a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. And you can only do that when you embrace the reasons for joy. That God has made all things good. And you actually believe that. There's a saying that uh, is in the history of the church that I have started to revive in my own congregation. And it's a, call, it's a sort of a call and response. You, I think it, in many cases, was really embraced in the black church in the South. 
someone would say. They'd see each other. God is good. What's the response? All the time, God is good. We've got to say that more often. That ought to become a liturgy of our life. And not just say it, to say it, but say it because we know it. God is good, and he is good all the time. That's why we can give thanks. Because even when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, and I'm not trying to say that life is all sweetness and light. It's full of hardship and sorrow and suffering. I know now that Randy is leading you through the book of Acts. I just preached through the book of Acts two years ago. It's one of, the, one of the grand privileges of my life was to study that book. I'm so excited for you. It is an unbelievable book. But one of the things that I realized, it is a book full of exuberant joy. And it is also a book full of unimaginable difficulty and hardship. And we're living in a time where I do believe that hardship and difficulty are going to become more familiar to us as the church. That should not scare us if we know the book of Acts. Because it's a supreme opportunity to practice what Paul has given us. Rejoice always, even in the midst of difficulty, to rejoice. Because we know that God is good. And if we know our Bible, like the book of Acts, we know that especially in the valley of the shadow of death, in the weaknesses of our life, in the brokenness, in the pain, God loves to show himself strong and good. Closing, I want to read for you something my wife wrote for her Grandma Wanda. Grandma Wanda was a woman who raised my wife as a sort of surrogate mother in the family. She was one of those sort of like grandmothers that exists not in your not not blood related to you, but because she loves you and is, exists in your life, your whole life. Grandma Wanda was a simple woman. I had the privilege of getting to know her toward the end of her life. When she passed away, my, my, my wife wrote a eulogy for her. And she captured, I think, how Grandma Wanda in her life exemplified this very thing that I have been encouraging all toward. She wrote, The sweetness of her memory is characterized by the sweetness of her demeanor. A sweetness not dampened by her failing mind or failing body. Her constant delight in me and my sister, and then in our husbands and our children, her thankfulness for all the Lord had given her, her genuine care for the people in her life, and her true joy through a myriad of circumstances, all aged so gracefully, and became even more beautiful when her mind couldn't remember the details of who or how many anymore. My last visit with her, she probably asked me how many children I had at least five times. And every single time, she was just as pleased and delighted as she was at the first. 
Beloved, this is something that's really important to understand. Joy is not something that you gin up. It's rooted deep in the realities of God being good and giving us a good world in creation. It's the knowledge that God has made a good world overflowing with His abundant gifts. And even in the midst of sin's brokenness, all is being restored by Jesus. That's why He came. His grace restores the good of creation. And this is why Lady Wisdom concludes chapter 8 by saying, Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. And all who hate me love death. I encourage you, If you've taken anything away from these talks that I've given this weekend, I hope that you will go forward with a serious purpose to ask the Lord to help you cultivate joy in his good gifts. To study them, to cherish them, to learn to love them more than you currently do and to give thanks with gladness in your heart to the Lord for them. Not to turn them into idols, but to turn them into, or to recognize, not to turn them into anything, but to recognize them for what they are. God's gifts to you because he loves you, and he delights in you, and he is the source of all true pleasure. Our joy, our our joy and privilege as those who belong to the kingdom of God is to grow up into that. And that is not set at odds with the difficulty and suffering that we face in life. When my mother died 10 years ago of cancer, it was one of the hardest things I walked through personally, I've ever walked through. I was very, very close to my mother. I am who I am because of her and my father too. They're both giants in my world. I lost one of the grand pillars of my life when I lost my mother. But going through that, I had this realization at the moment when my heart was breaking out of sorrow. I had a choice I could make. I could either choose to give thanks for the fact that I had had this woman to be my mother for 40 years, or I could grow in my resentment for the Lord taking her away from me. And I realized, and it wasn't just a kind of intellectual realization, it was my heart literally burst open with grief and joy at the same time, that I had been given the privilege of being her son. It was the greatest thing. It was such a deep joy to be her son. Sorry, I'm going to have a hard time talking about this even 10 years later. And the sorrow was so acute precisely because she was so beloved. Can I exhort you? End your life that way. End it in such a way that all the people who are close to you, that their hearts break because they've lost something of great, precious value that they love. 
But you can only do that if you are glad in God's gifts yourself and you learn to love that kind of way. So it's not in counterdistinction to pain. It's actually the way of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Learn to rejoice and to give thanks because God is good all the time. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the privilege of being here, of being in your presence, of knowing you. Thank you that you are the source of all good things and that you have given us all good things to enjoy. We acknowledge, Father, that our capacity to enjoy is often so small and limited. We often despise your gifts. And we resent you when you take them away from us. Father, I pray that you would help us to become a people who deeply and passionately love the good things that you have given and who love you, the giver of all of them. And Father, when you ask us to open our hand and to give them back, help us to do so with joy exuberant, knowing that you are good and that even in your taking things away, you are good all the time. Thank you for all of these good things and thank you for this weekend to contemplate them. Draw us nearer to you as we reflect and as we think about these things and as we go forth to be your people in this world that desperately needs to know the joy and the pleasure of you and your gifts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.